0: Good morning. Nice to see you. I sit at the front of a church and um, it's always a, a mystery how many people come in and are sitting behind me. I can't tell you how reassuring it is to know that some have come in and have been sitting behind me. Let's pray that God would have something for each of us this morning as we look at the scriptures together. Would you pray with me? Father God thank you for your presence with us. And we pray Lord that you'd find us teachable this morning. We pray that you'd give us hearts that are ready to receive from you. Send your Holy Spirit upon us. Come and help me as I speak to lift you up Lord Jesus. We pray in your name. Amen. We're continuing our sermon series which is all about how to be secure when the world is shaking, or more personally, how to be secure when your world is shaking, when our personal worlds are beginning to shake. And up until now in this series, there's been, I would say, an emphasis on things that we need to put into place. I think I talked about remembering Jesus Christ and committing to the Master's master plan. And last week, Sam was talking about how to overcome worry and anxiety. And it just struck me that I needed to do something to redress the balance because it sounds a bit lopsided up to now. Sounds as too much as if it all depends on us. A kind of do-it-yourself course uh, in security. And so I want to switch the focus and to remind us of God's part in our partnership because in truth the reason that we're able to continue to follow him is not because we're great followers but it is because he's a great leader and I have an incredibly simple purpose today I really want to focus put the spotlight and bring out for us the kindness Of Jesus and if possible increase your confidence in the consistent kindness of Jesus and to give you reasons to trust him. It's very very easy to take the kindness of Jesus for granted uh, because it's on every page and I think there's a danger that because it's on every page of his life that it's hidden in plain sight. Well, hopefully uh, by the end of this talk it won't be hidden, it'll be highlighted in plain sight. Now, stepping back a moment, kindness, it seems to me anyway, is not a quality that we appear to appreciate or value very much, even though we definitely like it when it comes our way. For example, I don't know when the last time was that uh, you put out an advert to fill a job vacancy or you wrote a reference for someone who is applying for a job. I don't think I've ever seen kindness on the list of must-have attributes or even desirable attributes. I wonder even if you were reading a reference about somebody that you were thinking of employing that if the word kindness was written up under their name, I wonder if in some ways that might even weaken your perception of a person you were looking at. And why do I say that? Well, because in popular culture, in many, many popular TV programs on at the moment, like The Apprentice or Traitors, they prioritize qualities such as ruthlessness, and decisiveness and they celebrate duplicity which I know is really odd because we know that it is kind people that light up our wealth none of us are going to dispute that they are the people who make our personal worlds fulfilling enjoyable and satisfying and it's when we are near to people who are kind and we know them to be kind that we feel secure, isn't it? And we feel strengthened and enabled to face anything that comes our way. And the good news is that you and I can't meet anyone more kind, consistently so, than Jesus Christ. And so, as we hear about his kindness, I want you to have this thought in your mind, please, that the same Jesus I'm talking about is reaching out to you today and offering you his company offering you to walk through life with you as a friend now as I say Jesus' acts of kindness are manifold in scripture and it's really challenging for me to narrow down and just pick some but I need to do that and the very first act of kindness, we definitely take for granted, and, and that's this, that he chose to come in the first place. Probably the most famous verse in scripture, the most familiar one, John three sixteen: God so loved the world that he gave, or he sent his one and only son, that whoever believes in him won't perish, but have everlasting life. Now, if you think of this as you know, God sends his son on a mercy mission, you're only getting half the picture. I prefer to think of it like this, that in the heavenly realms, the Trinity were having a discussion together. And, and they say to each other, what a mess the world is in. What are we gonna do about this? And they decide together that Jesus will come. And, and it's not just God sending his son, because in a mysterious way that is mind-boggling, God's in his son, God himself dwells with us every Christmas you hear the reading from John chapter 1 that he made his dwelling place with us he tabernacled with us he pitched his tent here it was a, an act of kindness and this is what God does when he sees people in trouble he draws near to help so in the old testament in the book of exodus the Lord said, I've indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. They were in slavery. I've seen it. I've heard them crying out because of their slave drivers. I'm concerned about their suffering, so I've come down to rescue them. Now, I'm about to use a very, very unfair illustration by way of comparison. And I want to be careful and say it is unfair. And I am not knocking the person that I'm comparing to God's actions who is Prince William when when Prince William decides to spend an afternoon selling the big issue or to spend a night incognito sleeping on the streets of London we're moved and we're impressed and we see something of his heart and these are praiseworthy actions so don't get me wrong I, I, I admire it I'm not deriding them but what he's choosing to do when he spends one night on the streets or he sells a big issue, even though it impresses us for obvious reasons, it doesn't compare to what Jesus did in coming to live upon the earth as a man. Why not? Well, put bluntly and succinctly, because of the size of their respective kingdoms and the length of their reigns. The Son of God didn't sleep rough for one night, but for every night. His coming is an act of kindness. That was in John chapter 1. Then it struck me, well, what will I discover if I go on reading in John? And, and I'll I'd, I'd just give you a you know, quick highlight. So in chapter 2, his kindness, when the wine runs out at a wedding, Now, it'd be pretty embarrassing today if a wine or the eats run out at a a wedding. But in Jesus' day, it was absolute catastrophe, social catastrophe. And he steps in, as you know, turns water into wine. Why? Kindness. Or chapter three, when a Pharisee, a leader of Israel's Jewish community comes and visits him at night and he's so obviously out of his depth and so obviously perplexed and, and he's just full of questions for Jesus and is in total confusion. What does Jesus do? He kindly leads him towards the truth, tells him what he must do. He needs to be born again and we know that by the end of the gospel that same visitor who came by night, Nicodemus by name, he's a believer. He is one of the ones who takes Jesus' body down and, and looks after it with Joseph of Arimathea. And once you start on this track, you begin to see kindness in every chapter. That was chapter three. In chapter four, Jesus is now in Samaria. And there's a woman who's living a very broken life. And the reason it's broken is because she's a disaster when it comes to making relationships. Her life has so fallen apart That she's rejected by her own community to the point where she's on her own in the middle of a day, the heat of a day, drawing water from a well. And what does Jesus do? He engages in a conversation, which is a kind conversation. And by the end of a chapter, he's put her back together again. And you know that story of a woman at the well. And so on and so on in chapter five, the healing at Bethesda. Of a man at the pool and you may not have stopped to actually picture this but it's a grotesque scene. There was this pool uh, and the custom had it that if you could get into the pool quick enough you'd be healed and so John describes that around that pool are people suffering from all sorts of things and it must have been dreadful to go and visit it and Jesus walks into this crowd of of sick people and there's this man who's been there for 38 years. Well, you know what's coming. How does Jesus behave? Oh, he says tough luck. No, of course he doesn't. His kindness draws him to the person. Now, what have any of these people done that they should attract the kindness of Jesus or deserve this kind of kindness? And the answer is, I can't see they've done anything at all. It's simply that kindness overflows from the heart of Jesus, willy-nilly, every day, every hour of every day. And that is so encouraging for me and so encouraging for you. And John will write in his first letter, we love because he first loved us, that's the point. It initiates from what's going on in God. And pretty soon, news about this gets around, and his reputation spreads, and people trust him for his goodness and his kindness. And if you've got eyes to see it, you begin to see that people who are living very broken lives, who have got used to being downtrodden, and that's no fun, who've got used to being pushed to the edge of their community, and that is no way to live. People who've been rejected and hurt and scorned, they make their way into Jesus' company because they're so confident, certainly not in themselves, but confident that they will meet with kindness if they get close to Jesus. And that's what was going on in the story you just had read to you. And it, it, it's a painful story because it exposes what probably is going on in many of our hearts most of the time. The story of Simon the Pharisee and what happened when he invited Jesus for dinner. And now Simon comes out of his story badly. But he did something well. He, he invited Jesus to dinner. That was a good start. But when this woman gate crashes the dinner party when she bursts in literally off the streets, which it was easy to do in those days because people didn't live behind closed doors, and when she makes a song and dance about Jesus, Simon is embarrassed. And you know the script, you know, he says to himself, he says to himself, if this man Jesus was even a half-baked prophet, he would know what kind of a woman it is that is touching him. And you know what happens next, Jesus actually looks up and says to Simon revealing he's he's more than a half-baked prophet he actually knows what Simon's thinking Simon, Simon this woman she's doing what you ought to have done she's welcoming me, she's blessing me, she's anointing me because she knows that she's been forgiven much and she's loved much but the point I'm making and what the highlight is what gave that broken woman the confidence to come close to Jesus? What gave her the desire, because it couldn't have been easy, to break into that community where she knew that other people would look down on her and reject her, and to be so vulnerable kneeling at Jesus' feet? I tell you what it was. She knew about what we've just sung about, the overwhelming, everlasting, reckless love of God. And it made her secure when her world was so wobbly. Now, this is incredibly important to you and to me. Because the day will come, more than one day, when we absolutely will need to know that God's kindness is reliable, even when our life isn't going well. When we can't think of any good reason why God should be kind towards us, we still need to know it. I haven't used the word so far, but actually I think this word that I'm calling kindness, probably a New Testament good word for it, much of the time is mercy. I've avoided that word because we don't use that in our everyday conversations, but this is really what I'm talking about. Kindness and mercy are joined at the hip. Let me give you an example of someone who discovered how much they needed God's kindness and mercy, it's Simon Peter. I mean, we, we know, we know that he's famous for denying Jesus three times and the details of that incident that story well they must have given Simon nightmares for months you'd have thought he would have looked back and he'd remembered his dreadful overconfidence you know his brashness even if the others desert you no, that's not me I'm not going that direction I'll always be faithful to you He'd have remembered the prediction of Jesus. Actually, you won't, Simon. By morning, you will have denied me three times. He would have remembered that haunting line that Simon followed Jesus at a distance. And when you start doing that, you're cruising for a bruising. And then he would have remembered probably the worst sign of a lot, that just after he has rejected and denied Jesus three times, Luke says, the Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. Wow, but you and I know it's in our memory bank, isn't it? That's not the end of the story. We know that after the resurrection, Jesus will come alongside him and three times more will commission him or recommission him because of his kindness. So let me ask you a couple of questions then. Are you beginning to see that Jesus is consistently kind? And then, have you asked him to be kind to you? Does it make a difference to your life today? Is this what's giving you security? Because friends, if it's anything else that you look to for security, it will let you down. There is one crowning act of kindness, which I have to mention in the last days of Jesus' life. He wants to prepare his closest friends, his disciples, for the events of his death. And so he does that out of kindness and he prepares them for his death and in the same breath for their own deaths. When he says this, don't let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I'll come back and take you to be, to be with me where I am. To me, one of the reasons that I can trust Jesus, and one of the reasons I think you can trust Jesus, because he always speaks the truth even when it's hard to hear and I don't know if you pick this up but in those words that he just said to his disciples he uses a very interesting argument I don't think any politician would ever dare to use because and i this is slightly scurrilous for me to say this about politicians but whenever I hear a politician talk It goes through a filter in my mind of, well, you can't believe that. Because they say so much and deliver so little. So, I mean, don't tell me that you think any differently. If if, if you, no, I'll stop that before (laughs) I But with Jesus, everything that he says, he speaks the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. So it means sometimes his conversations are quite painful. So a man man runs up to Jesus and comes up to him with this question Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, well you need to keep the commands and the guy says, yeah, well I've done that ever since I was young and Jesus looks at him and Mark tells us a very telling phrase, Jesus looked at him and loved him so there's that kindness again and then he says yes, this is Jesus talking but you need to go and sell all your possessions and give to the poor, and then you need to come and follow me. Now, that's a harsh or demanding thing to say, but Jesus says it because it's true. This man, obviously, was captured by his possessions. He was possessed by his possessions. And in order to be free to follow Jesus, that's what he needed to do. And he chose not to. Instead, he decided to walk away. The the man's face fell. To receive this kindness, you have to put yourself at Jesus' disposal. Because he makes just as challenging statements to you and to me. So he says, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross daily and follow me. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it. Whoever loses their life for me will save it. Now someone who speaks truth like that, you can trust. And that's why Jesus said to the disciples, when I say I'm going to prepare a place for you and I'm coming back, I would have told you, wouldn't I, if that were not the case. And that meant something to the listeners because throughout his life, he's always spoken the truth. But what he wants them to know is, if you trust me, I will look after you for life. In this life, through your death, and into the next life. Back to that verse I began with, God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, so that whoever believes in him or trusts him will not perish, but will have everlasting life. I'm told that um, there was a missionary that went out to the New Hebrides in the 1800s, and his name was John Patton. One of his first jobs that he had to do was to translate the New Testament into the local language. And uh, he had a scribe who was working with him and he, Mr. Patton, was sitting down leaning back in his chair trying to work out what idiom do I use to actually translate this John 3.16 whoever believes in him shall have everlasting life. And then he thought, they need to trust Jesus in the same way as I trust this chair. And so in his translation, it reads, God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son so that whoever puts their full weight on him will not perish but will have everlasting life. And that's the case for you and for me too, when we put our full weight on Jesus and bank on his kindness. I'm going to end with a little illustration of someone who evidently did this. His name, he was quite famous in his time. His name was Quentin Hogg. He died actually aged 94 in 2001. He was better known as Lord Hailsham and he was was a knight of the Order of the Garter. He was a companion of honour. He was a privy councillor. He was a QC, he was a fellow of the Royal Society, and he was being interviewed on Desert Island Discs by Sue Lawley, and she asked him this, as the highest judge in the land, what will you do when you face your maker on that last great day, as I know you believe you will? What will you say to him is your greatest achievement? And he replied, I will do nothing but throw myself on the mercy of the court. There's nothing that would justify me before the face of Almighty God." Now, when I heard that, I was so intrigued that I got hold of his autobiography, and I read it. And in it, I came across this poem that he wrote, and I'm going to share it with you as I come to a close. And I'd just like to suggest that when you hear the word mercy, you also think of kindness. Here we go then. Father, before this sparrow's earthly flight ends in the darkness of a winter's night, Father, without whose word no sparrow falls, hear this, thy weary sparrow, when he calls. Mercy, not justice, is his contrite prayer. Cancel his guilt. And drive away despair, Speak but the word, And make his spirit whole, Cleanse the dark places Of his heart and soul, Speak but the word, And set his spirit free, Mercy, not justice, Still his constant plea. So shall thy sparrow, Crumpled wings restored, Soar like the lark, And glorify his Lord. Let's pray. Let's just take a moment to think whether we this morning know about the kindness of God, not just in our heads but in our hearts, whether it's going to make a difference to how we do the rest of today and to how secure we are Thank you, Lord Jesus, that perfect love drives out fear. Thank you that we see examples day after day after day in your life of love that will never end and kindness that springs from your heart. We want to claim that kindness. We want to come and receive it. And we know that you set the bar high, Lord. Tell us that to do that, we must surrender to you. And we feel safe to do that, trusting in your kindness and love. So come and reassure us, fill us afresh with your Holy Spirit, that we might know your love in our hearts and your hope in our lives. In Jesus' name, Amen. think Beth and the group can do